This is Darrell Lalia, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast, episode 36. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur entrepreneur and you are listening to the before the millions podcast hey this is mark asquith the host of the seven minute mentor podcast global entrepreneur and all-round geek and you are listening to the before the millions podcast i am mc lobster the cash flow ninja and you're listening to before the millions podcast you're listening to the before the millions podcast but whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent you've come to the right place. Mr. Hollywood himself presents the Before the Millions podcast. And now your host, DeRay Olalaye. Hey, what's up? What's going on, BTM community? Welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of the Before the Millions podcast. We're moving right along here in the new year. Man, we've already we've already knocked out five episodes, and that's because January was so long. There were like five Tuesdays in January, and you know we release an episode every Tuesday. But boy, you go from the longest month of the year to the shortest month of the year. This this month is going to go by really, 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 really fast. And have you started taking steps towards buying your first investment property? That is the question. Today, we're taking the episode uh, in a little bit of a different direction. Now, this is the new year, and we've been talking about getting into your first rental investment property. It's 2018. We've talked about the benefits We've compared it to other asset classes. We've even broken down the advantages, the advantages of investing in 2018. Now, I know what you're thinking. You have all this information and all these ideas, but you haven't been able to put them together cohesively to get started. You may think it's a lot easier for the clients in my coaching program to get started because I give them the roadmap and I I give them assistance and all the tools and all the resources that they need. Well, let me do that for you today. The name of this episode, by the way, is called Buy Your First or Next Investment Property, The 12-Step Process. So I've kind of designed this episode to really give you a footing or a starting point uh, for your investing career. So in this episode, I'll walk you through the exact steps that I coach my coaching clients through. And if you take action, I have no doubt, no doubt in my mind that you'll meet success. So let's not hold us up any longer. Let's get into the meat and potatoes of the show. Well, of course, you got to get the tip of the weekend, right? DeRay's tip of the week. Tip of the week this week is a little bit more of a spiritual foundation. So if you're not into all of that, if it's not your, you know, if it's not your cup of tea, if it's not your uh, bowl of cereal, if it's not your box of pizza, just head straight to the main presentation and learn the steps into getting into your first investment property. But the tip of the week this week is past year, I've tried to read the Bible from cover to cover. And boy, it's a it's a big book. It's a tough one. So I haven't been able to successfully do it. And oftentimes when I do read the Bible continuously for long periods of time, like I do normal novels, I tend to be reading just to read. And I don't really grasp a lot of the concepts that I'd like to grasp. So I found an app and it's called The Dab. 
the Daily Bible app and the pastor on the app, he goes through scripture, Old Testament and New Testament every single day in a clear. Now, he doesn't go from A to Z. He doesn't start from beginning and read to the end like I would. He has a formula that he kind of jumps around. But eventually, in 365 days, the idea is that you would have heard through his reading the whole Bible. And not only that, but after he reads, he provides insight, a summary. You know, so you're, it's almost like Bible study. It's amazing. I love the app. It's called the Daily Bible app. And you can't jump ahead because, I mean, he records them every day, daily. Here's the kicker. That's actually not the tip of the week. <laughs> I just want you to download the app because it's pretty cool. But the tip of the week <laughs> this week, create a morning routine. Yes, a morning routine. Something that you do every single morning, every single day. Not one thing, not two things, but a whole routine. Want to know mine? Every single morning of every single day, the first thing I do is I pray. I meditate and I pray. I wake up with God. I go to sleep with God. I do this for about 10, five, 10 minutes. Right after that, I read my Bible. As of late, I've been listening to Dab, the daily audio Bible. After that, my affirmations. After that, my visualizations. I visualize my day, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to accomplish, who I'm going to meet, who I'm going to shake hands with. Every single detail about my day, I visualize. Sounds weird and creepy, like some woo stuff, but hey, don't knock it till you try it. After visualizing, I journal. Very therapeutic. That's my favorite. Journaling is probably my favorite. And if I have calls and meetings in the morning, then I may do a quick exercise. But most of the time, 99% of the time, I'm going to the gym. Again, this all happened this year. I don't think I went to the gym at all last year. Don't tell anybody I said that. It sounds weird coming from me. If you know me, you know that I'm a athletic 6'4". I've never been out of shape in my life. But I do go on these tangents of just rebelling from the gym, and it's not good. I don't change physically, but I feel it. So I've made a more concerted effort this year to go to the gym. I digress. A morning routine is very, very, very important. And if you could work out in the morning, man, your effectiveness, your sharpness throughout the day. If you could meditate in the morning, <laughs> your clarity throughout the day. If you could visualize your day before you start your day, your decision making throughout the day. <sighs> it's amazing, guys. Again, I follow Hal's uh, method in the Miracle Morning. If you not anything in the book, just general things that people do, people that I've had uh, on the show, people that I've interviewed, um, people, things that I've done that have been successful. That's what I kind of want to walk through really quick with you guys. What effective, highly effective people do that's productive, they wake up at their right time. So whatever that means for you, be true to you. Know when you're productive. They eliminate decision-making tasks in the morning. So good way to do that is kind of think about all your tasks that you're going to knock out that day. Kind of do all that the night before. So maybe make a to-do list and kind of think about 
things that you're going to accomplish and problems you're going to solve before before you get to the next day. The thought of making too many decisions in the morning will slow you down and drain your brain for the rest of the day. So create a morning routine to focus on your mind. And as you heard from my morning routine, that's pretty much what I do. My whole morning is a focus on me and my mind and what really matters. My affirmations are focused on what really matters. There are some other things in my morning routine I didn't mention, some of which are drinking water, lots of it. I drink two liters of water a day. I try to start with a 20 ounce in the morning. Some people do coffee. Some people read something inspirational. Some people look at a calendar. Again, journaling is great. Moving around and hydrating is very important in the morning, even if it's just a 20 minute session. Last but not least, eat the frog or the tadpoles, meaning do your most important task first. The one thing that you're dreading because it's the big important thing that's looming over you and you don't want to get to it. You don't want to do it. You want to hide from it. Build the habit of doing that task first. It can give you a really, really big boost if you could accomplish that first thing in the morning. So there you have it. There's your tip of the week, guys. Hope you enjoyed it. Let's get to the show. And now your feature presentation. So this is part one of the 12 step process in buying your first or next real estate investment. Okay. And in this episode, we're going to discuss steps one through four. So you want to be a real estate investor. What do you do? This is kind of why I wanted to create this podcast episode is because when most people start investing in real estate, they often perform the steps out of order and that can that can be detrimental to your success. Let me explain. When I bought my first property, I started with step seven and step seven is finding deals. So I skipped a whole six steps, a whole six steps that if I would have not skipped, I probably would have set things up way different earlier on. I appreciate my mistakes and I appreciate the learning experience, but I'm here to make sure that you don't have to go through some of that turmoil. You don't have to skip the first six steps thinking that the first thing that you should do when it's time to decide that you want to buy an investment property is to jump straight to step seven and find deals. It's not the first thing. And you don't want to even think about looking for deals when you first uh, decide to be a real estate investor. So what do you want to start looking at? What's step one? What's step two? Let's get to those. Step one, real estate literacy. You could even take it a notch above that and say financial literacy. Now, the cornerstone book of real estate literacy is Rich Dad, Poor Dad, or financial literacy in, in general is Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And many of you know this. Many of you have read this book. Some of you haven't. I actually read this book two days ago. And no, it wasn't the first time. It wasn't even the second time or the third time. I read the book once a year. Every single time I read the book, I'm in a different place in life. It sparks different ideas. I might have missed something last time that I caught this time. Something else might have spoke to me different. I've made the decision to buy like 10 copies. And I'm going to use them as business cards, conversation starters, living room table settings, like if you walk into my living room and you see the book and you pick it up, I'm going to tell you to keep it. I wish I could give it to everybody. Like in an ideal world, I'd give a copy to everyone I come in contact with. You need a copy? You need a copy? Here you go. Here you go. You know what? I'm even going to create a link for you guys. So you guys, 
go to beforethemillions.com slash rich dad, beforethemillions.com slash rich dad. And if you haven't read the Rich Dad Poor Dad book, the original one, go read that book today. It's 10 bucks, 10 bucks, beforethemillions.com slash rich dad. It'll take you straight to the book. I implore you to get a physical copy. That's what I'm getting these days. I mean, I, I love reading the audio book, but I need, I need a few physical copies. I need one to kind of scratch up and highlight and take notes on. 10 bucks is not an expense. 10 bucks is an investment in your future. It's a powerful book. Matter of fact, if you want to, if you want to read the book for free, you can go listen to the book on Audible and I'll give you an Audible link for two free books. So you can listen to Rich Dad, Poor Dad and maybe at the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss. So go to audibletrial.com slash before the millions, audibletrial.com slash before the millions. And I'll have both of these links in the show notes. So the book is basically broken down into six lessons. Man, would it really get me excited to do a whole episode on this book? And a matter of fact, I think that I think that I will. And I know just who to ask to be on the show if I decide not to make it a solo episode. But anyways, six lessons, the first of which the rich don't work for money. Most people want to feel secure with their money. So passion doesn't really direct them. Fear does. It's certainly easier to work for money, but it's not safer. I don't think you'll get much more security by investing your time into creating assets that generate money rather than only getting paid for your hourly labor. Learning how to do this, of course, is the study of becoming financially literate. Step number one. And this book is a great first step conceptually. But that's where the book stops for the book, at least, because the book doesn't really give you any actionable steps. But once you get the concepts down, that's when that's when the education really begins. That's when you go out and you seek you seek all the other books that people kind of pivot to once they read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. You seek mentors. You go, uh, you go listen to beforethemains.com slash episode 31. You go listen to episode 31 of this podcast, and it'll highlight the six reasons why you should purchase your first investment property in 2018. It'll tell you why real estate is better than the stock market. Go to biggerpockets.com. If you don't know what Bigger Pockets is, there are not very many real estate investors, real estate professionals. Anybody, there aren't very many people in the real estate world that don't know what bigger pockets is. And I'm telling you this not to to make you feel left out, but to tell you to go explore, go sign up, go to biggerpockets.com, add me as a friend. I'm on there. On uh, episode 16, I interviewed the vice president of Bigger Pockets, Scott Trench. Go listen to that episode. Bigger Pockets is going to have some educational resources, some team building resources. I mean. You can meet all types of people in bigger pockets. You can meet you can meet your next lender. You can meet your next broker. You can meet your next agent. You can meet your next partner. There are transactions that that go on because of bigger pockets. There are people that meet and and they do deals together. There's a marketplace. You can put stuff up for sale on bigger pockets. Not like your pots and pans, but like land, <laughs> real estate. So once you have step one down, once once you delve into the real estate world and you start uh, getting acquainted with some of the terms and you start you start really building up your literacy, then it's it's time to move on to step two. And step two is goal setting. Now we vastly talk about goal setting on episode thirty one, the episode I just mentioned. Um, so I'm not going to go into too much detail on how to set your lifestyle goals, but that's where you start. You start with your lifestyle goals. What type of life do you see yourself living? We're here to design our lives the way we see fit. So, so start designing that. What do you see yourself doing? How do you see yourself living out your life? What do you see? What is fulfilling in your future? What are you looking forward to? 
Let's imagine how we've always wanted to live. And once you've imagined that, we're going to use real estate to make that imagination a reality. Okay. So you've set your lifestyle goals. You need to set your financial goals next. You know, what, what type of financial goals do you need to have in order to meet your lifestyle goals? Well, you know, DeRay, I just, I just want to live all right. I don't want to do too much. I don't want to be this big mogul. I just, I just kind of want to create passive income streams and, and take care of my family and, and go to my son's baseball games and, and kind of just be a regular guy. Five, $10,000 a month. That's perfect. That's a starting point. That's, that's specific enough for you to create some financial goals and be like, okay, well, if I need five, $10,000 a month to be comfortable, to provide my family with everything that they need, then what type of real estate investing goal, what type of real estate investments do you need to get into to achieve your financial goals, to achieve your lifestyle goal? So if you're looking for continuous reoccurring revenue, because we just said five to $10,000 a month, that's continuous, that's reoccurring, then maybe you need to buy a portfolio of, of single family rental properties. You want to go to your son's baseball games. Again, maybe maybe you need to buy rental property so that you have time to do that. Fixing and flipping, you know, that's a job. So what type of real estate is going to get you to your financial goals? And whatever type of real estate is going to get you to financial goals and how many, that's your real estate investment goal. That's what we're trying to get to. Let me say this and stretch, stretch goals out a little bit because I think it's important. Some of us, we're setting our lifestyle goals. We're setting our financial goals. We're setting our real estate goals. And as we're doing this in our head, it's never really going to, it's never really going to pan out for some of us when we're not ever going to actually write those goals down. Those goals are, are made now. And five minutes later, we forget about them or two days later, something more important happens and it has to take the back seat. So how do we make sure that these are actual goals and not just ideas that come and go as, as they please? There's a method. There's a method called SMART goals, and that's an acronym. In order for you to set SMART goals, you need to follow the acronym. Setting SMART goals means you clarify your ideas. You focus your efforts. You use your time. You use your resources productively, and you increase your chances of achieving what you want in life. I promise you. So what does SMART mean? Specific measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-bound. So when you make a goal, it has to hit every single one of these levers. Let's learn how to set a SMART goal. When it comes to being specific, what do you want to achieve? Why is this goal important? Who's involved? Where is it located? Which resources or limits are involved? So for example, imagine that you're currently a passive investor meaning that you give somebody else money to invest for you. But you like to become an active investor. You like to go find your own deals and and put them together and be in the thick of things. So a specific goal could be, I want to gain the skills and experience necessary to become an active investor so that I can build my real estate portfolio and help others grow their wealth. That's specific, measurable, how much, how many, How will I know when it's accomplished? You might measure your goal of acquiring the skills to become an active investor by determining that you'll have completed the necessary, I don't know, training. You would have went to get your real estate license, whatever it is, but you'd have that to measure it by. Achievable. How can you accomplish this goal? How realistic is the goal based on other constraints such as financial factors? 
you might need to ask yourself whether developing the skills required to become an active real estate investor based on your existing experience and qualifications is, is even realistic. It may be a time constraint thing. You know, do you have the time to complete the required training effectively? Are the necessary, are the necessary resources available to you? Can you afford it? Some things to think about when you're trying to figure out if your goal is achievable. Is it relevant? What does relevant mean? So does this seem worthwhile? Is this the right time? Is this a match? Does this match other efforts, needs? Are you the right person even for the job? Is it applicable to your current socioeconomic environment? For example, if you want to start a family, maybe completing the training that you need may be a little bit more difficult. Have you considered your spouse's goals? So it has to be a relevant goal in your life. It has to be time-bound. Every goal needs to be time-bound. When? What can I do six months from now? What can I do six weeks from now? What can I do today? So does your goal meet the SMART goal criteria? Here's an example of a SMART goal. I will acquire three new clients. There's a number. You see that? You hear that number in there? That's being specific. I will acquire three new clients for my consulting business within two months. There's the time base. How are you going to do that? How do you measure it? By asking for referrals, launching a social media marketing campaign, and networking with local businesses. This will allow me to grow my business and increase my revenue. That's how you create a smart goal. And if you're like me, you want to review your goals constantly, whether that's daily, weekly, whatever. Some people write down their goals every single day, these same goals over and over. So they feel it. So it it sticks to them. So they act on it consciously and subconsciously. Okay. So financial literacy, step one, step two, goals. Goals is broken down into lifestyle goals, broken down into financial goals, broken down into real estate investment goals. And your method for creating your goals is using SMART goals. Got it? Get it? Good. Oh, wait. Get it? Got it? Good. Step three, it's now time to choose a market. Step three is choosing a market. There's an old adage in real estate that goes location, location, location. In order to be a successful real estate investor, it's all about location. Evaluating the right place to invest your dollars identifying the right market, both at a macro and a micro level. Now, for a first-time real estate investor, a lot of this stuff could be very tricky and very technical and very overwhelming and quite literally might push you over the edge to not even want to get started. So I'm here to make it easy for you. Start with your goals. That is why goal setting is a step before choosing your market. And you'll see how Every single one of these steps play right into another step and why it is important to go in this order. So are you investing for the long term? Are you trying to achieve a short term boost in value? So the various markets throughout the country will produce more consistent cash flow per dollar invested, but the properties may not appreciate as much. Other regions will exhibit strong trends for appreciation and value, but the cash flow may not be where you want it to be. Many investors, especially first-time investors, want to start investing in their own backyard. They're familiar with it. They, they know the area. They can rely on their own expertise. They can rely on their own connections, their own network, maybe even manage the property themselves. So that's a, a great, great starting point if investing in your market fits your lifestyle, financial, and real estate goals. 
Because if investing in your market, if you live in California and you're looking for cash flowing rentals, maybe investing in your market is not the best idea. As you guys know, most California investors invest in Texas. If you do look beyond your local market, it can be helpful to consider cities where you have connections. Maybe you've lived in the past, but that should not be a deciding factor. An economic analysis of the market is much more important than field good reasons like my cousin Josh lives there and he can keep an eye on things. <laughs> so what you want to do is called a top down analysis. So you want to start with maybe the region or the city and then determine the right geography for your needs, which you're down to the neighborhood level and and you can drill down from there. So what should you be looking at? Jobs. Are wages rising? Are they falling? Are they stagnant? What's the unemployment rate? Is there economic diversity? Does one company make up the bulk of the jobs in the area? If so, run the other way. Because if that company goes out of business, so do all the jobs. A city with multiple economic drivers will be more stable and more likely to grow. So you go from the economic factors to the real estate factors. What are the rent to value ratios? We're going to talk about that. What are the housing sales statistics? What are the vacancy rates? How long are properties being on the market? Things to think about. Regulatory factors. What's the property tax rates? What are the insurance rates? What are the local landlord and tenant laws? You know, like how easy is it to evict a tenant? For example, Texas is a, is a, is a landlord-friendly state. So two, three days after a tenant doesn't pay rent, I'm filing and I know that I, I can easily get another tenant, you know, in the property within a week. It's not like that in a lot of places. Now, I'm not really like that. I'm just role-playing, of course. In tenant-friendly states, a tenant, professional tenant, uh, we like to call them, know how to drag on these court proceedings, know how to take advantage of, of the system, know how to basically squat, squatting your property for six months, a year, you know? So you have to know what state you're investing in and, and if it's uh, if it's a landlord-friendly state or a tenant-friendly state, because stuff like that wouldn't happen in Texas. Sorry. You know, what, what are the local market factors? You wouldn't just decide to invest in Nike because you live in Portland or Coca-Cola because you live in Atlanta, you would evaluate how that company's stock is likely to, is likely to perform based on many factors, you know, related to the industry, the competition, the regulation, things like that. Talking as if I'm a stock market guru, but I'm just saying, you know, just want to give you guys relatable examples. So if you apply the same kind of analytic reasoning to real estate markets, then you're more likely to find properties that will produce success for your plan. I'm sorry that I'm not able to tell you, hey, invest in Cleveland, invest in Jacksonville. That's not how it works. I'm, I'm not I'm not able to give you guys exact cities when when it comes to us getting a step three and saying choosing a market. It's going to be different for everybody. I wish I can give you guys like certain cities to invest in, but just based on your goals, based on your balance sheet, there you know, there's a lot of factors that go into it. I can give each individual that reaches out to me one on one advice for choosing the market, but for the podcast episode, it has to be as general as possible. And I'm just kind of giving you guys the tools and the resources so that you guys know what to look for when you are choosing a market. And before I end this point, there are three three types of markets, by the way. There's there's a growth market, just kind of like the name suggests. Those markets are on the rise with population moving upwards and trending well. We like to say these markets are booming. They're stable markets. These markets are, you know, stable, steady, aren't really going, aren't really going anywhere. They won't really fluctuate upwards or downwards, and they won't be growing at a very rapid pace. Oftentimes there'll be just enough growth to keep up with inflation. 
declining markets. Now, in this market, you may want to hold on tight because these markets are on a downward slope. With the population and job market decreasing, it is wise to be careful when you're in a declining market. So again, when choosing a market, it's always best to select one that best aligns with your specific investing goals. For example, an investor who only wishes to go into investing for cash flow instead of banking on appreciation should probably opt for a more stable market. Pretty difficult to tell whether any given market is is wise to invest in, and there's certainly no guarantee. However, so long as you make good investing decisions, such as buying right and financing right, buying right most of the time is buying at a deep discount or with a value add play. Financing right most of the time is getting favorable terms. But as long as you buy right and finance right, you should be pretty solid. Last but not least for today is how to analyze deals. This is step number four. Now, this is another tricky, tricky, tricky area. But again, I'm going to simplify it for you as simple as possible so that we we eliminate the intimidation. We eliminate the fear. It's funny because I come from a background in which analyzing deals is so normal to me. My very last W-2 job was an investment analyst. And as an investment analyst, I was analyzing multi-million dollar deals and billion dollar funds, literally. And before that, I worked for a big four accounting firm. So I had to know the financial statements front and back. So I can get a little bit carried away when it comes to analyzing deals. And I can pull out the weirdest of graphs and formulas and all these in-depth analysis. And that's what we do. That's, that's quite honestly what we do especially as you start getting into the bigger real estate deals, the, the, the commercial real estate deals, it's, it's very, very valuable to have those skills. But as a first-time real estate investor, buying your first property, buying a single family, buying a, a small multifamily from two to four units, there are some in-depth analysis that, that are involved, yes, but there are also general rules of thumb. It wouldn't do us any justice trying to talk through in-depth analysis of how to analyze a deal quite simply because there are many different types of real estate. There are many different types of deals. And it would be, you know, that would be a conversation for somebody who's looking to uh, analyze deals and they're, they're having some trouble. That would be a one-on-one conversation that I would want to have with that person. But so we're not, we're not going to go do in-depth analysis on this episode, but we're going to do general rules of thumb. And we're going to assume that you're, you're looking to get into your first investment property, whether that's a single family or that's a duplex or a triplex or a fourplex. So we're not going to talk about cap rates. We're not going to talk about NOI. We're not going to talk about cash on cash return. We're not going to talk about IRRs. We're going to keep it cut and dry. Okay. So before we get into the, the general rules of thumb, let me let me quickly say that the value of a single family house investment or not is generally determined by the market comps. Comps is short for comparables. And those are properties in the same area that have similar characteristics, same floor plan, same number of bedrooms, bathrooms, equivalent size garage, same amenities, etc. So a single family investment would generally rise if the value of similar homes in the area are also rising and will lose value if those similar homes in the area are losing value. That's how you base the, the, the value of a single family resident. Now, with investments, at least two units especially those over four, they're priced in value differently. 
the bank considers an investment property over four units. So if you have, if you're operating with a, with a property between one and four units, then they're going to look at that and they're going to, they're, they're going to analyze that property based on comparables. Okay. As soon as you hit five units, they're going to analyze that property based on income. And you're going to base, you're going to base the value of that property on income. So the value of a larger investment property is directly related to how much income slash profit it produces for the owner. So it's possible that an apartment building in a neighborhood where house prices are dropping could be increasing in value, especially if the components of the market that drive the, the income are improving. So the fact that multifamily properties are valued based on their income potential demonstrates how important good financial analysis of these properties really is. When purchasing my fourplex, I knew that my lender and the seller were valuing my property based on comparables. So based on what similar homes in the area were selling for, that's how they got their numbers. And you can call it a risk if you like, but Coming from the corporate background that I came from, knowing that all I did all day was analyze deals, multi-million dollar deals at that, I pre- I felt pretty comfortable taking the numbers and doing what I wanted with them. So while the property that I was looking to purchase, my fourplex was on sale and was on the market, was coming on and off the market a few times because the price was too high. Some investors were from Cali and, you know, there were a lot of different things that, that wasn't working out for, for other buyers. But when I got to it, when I analyzed it, I didn't analyze it as a single, I didn't analyze it the way I should have. And not because I didn't know how to, or I didn't, or I didn't think it was important, but because I knew that I was looking at this property as an investment property. Now, this is not something I'm suggesting for anybody else to do. I'm just telling you my personal experience. So when I analyzed my fourplex, I analyzed it as an investment property. I analyzed it as if it was five units or more. I analyzed it how the bank would have analyzed it if it were five five units or up. I analyzed it based on its income and profit. And by doing that, I felt comfortable offering a price. I didn't meet the seller's price, but I also didn't get a deep discount. I was comfortable doing this because I could clearly see the path to cash flow and I knew that even at the purchase price that I was going to buy at, I would still be cash flowing pretty well and be living for free, which is exactly what I did for a while while I got the work done on the property. So, yes, it was a special situation. Quite frankly, I don't care about how much it's worth today and what the comps are. I care about how much it's producing in cash flow. I'm a long-term buy and hold investor, so I don't plan on selling anytime soon. So today's numbers, what the market says, that's irrelevant for me. And a lot of people may not agree with that school of thought, and that's okay. We all have our own shades of green. We all we all like what we like. We all, you know, some people like to be super leveraged in a deal. Some people like to be all cash in a deal. It just depends on your flavor. Although I will say that having more leverage in a deal than equity has some exponentially better outcomes, but that's another story. Some people do like to have a uh, lots of equity in their in their in their deals, whereas I think you should pull that equity out and and diversify, even if you're gonna stay in your niche. Back to my fourplex. Now, if it ever came time to sell, 
because it's a fourplex and not a five unit, I'd have to conform and figure out where my property lies when looking and comparing it to other properties in the area to value it for a sale. But that's not how I valued it when I purchased it. Again, because I knew my goals. I knew I knew my motivations. If I knew that if I wanted to sell the fourplex in a year or two years, five years, 10 years, then I would have probably operated under, under a different assumption. But because I knew my goals and I knew the numbers and I knew the market, I was okay paying a little bit more. And to add to that, I knew that I was converting one of the units into a different use that would provide more income than what the property was already producing. So again, it it goes back to, to real estate literacy and getting educated before jumping in. Because if I hadn't been creative, then that property would not be mine. So sometimes it takes a little thinking outside of the box, but you're able to do that once you once you've been educated and once you have the knowledge and you know how to underwrite deals and you know how to and you understand some of the drivers back to the single home versus apartment. You can't just compare your apartment building to others down the street to know how much it's worth. I should also mention that while this analysis will work for any multi any multi-unit residential rental property, it's not sufficient for analyzing all types of commercial property. For things like office, industrial, retail, there's a lot more you need to know. I would recommend you find some additional resources or a mentor. The, The goal of this episode is to give the most novice advice in general so that you have a starting point to go and seek more education. Rule of thumb number one, the 50% rule. This rule states that for a real estate investment, the non-mortgage expense will usually average out to about 50% of the rent long-term. What does this mean? It means that when analyzing a deal, you should assume that expenses, excluding the mortgage payment, but you know vacancies, maintenance, and other non-mortgage charges, you should assume that this should equal 50% of your monthly rent. So for example, if you own a fourplex and the fourplex brings in $5,000 a month in rent, you can probably expect that over the long run, this property will cost you $2,500 a month in vacancies, maintenance, and other charges. With that being said, if you're buying a fourplex or a duplex or a single family, and you ask the seller, hey, I wanna see the financials, and you see that expenses are 70% of monthly rent, you might think, oh, this is a bad investment. I know that the rule of thumb is that they should be 50%. But I challenge you to get excited when you see something like that. I challenge you to think, oh, this property is operating inefficiently. I know that with the 50% rule that a property's operating expenses should be right around 50%. So if your operating expenses are at 70%, then I have some value to be able to add to this property. What does that mean? So if you buy the property, you may quickly realize why his expenses are so high. You may realize that he's overpaying for a property manager and you have a property manager that charges half. You know, he's paying $400 a month for property management and you found somebody who's charging $200 a month. You may realize that there's a water leak and that's why the water bill has been super expensive the past six months and nobody knew. You may come across 
plethora of different things, but these are all problems and problems are good when it comes to real estate investments. Problems are good in the sense that you want to solve these problems because that's how you add value to the property. That's how that's how you find good deals. That's how you make a deal good is by adding value and solving problems and vice versa. If you get the financials of a, of a deal and it's operating at 30% expenses, well, then that's another red flag. You're wondering if they're leaving information out. You're wondering if they're being shady. You know, that may be a reason to walk away from a deal. It may be a reason to investigate further and figure out why expenses are so cheap. Because you may just get in there and you may think expenses are one thing. And now your expenses are at 50% and you're not cash flowing anymore because you thought expenses were at 30%. Because the previous owner had expenses at 30%. So it's like a little game of like Scooby-Doo, I don't know, clues, mystery, things like that. You kind of have to go, yeah, you have to be a forensic detective. It's kind of fun, but don't let that deter you. It's it's fun, not, not daunting. Okay. Promise. And by the way, you're not the only person who's going to analyze your deals. There are going to be a few other people analyzing your deals, including your agent, your coach, your lender. You know, so you're not the only eyes going over these things and you're like, and and you you have no reason to worry. Trust me, we're going to go through every single step. And I don't know if I'm going to do a part two and kind of cover the rest of the steps since we're on, we're on the very last step now, or if I'm just kind of going to give it to you uh, through a webinar format or a YouTube video. I haven't decided yet, but, but what I will do for now, guys, make sure that you guys have all 12 steps and have uh, links and resources for all 12 steps. And that'll be for everybody who's a part of my mailing list, but we'll get to that at the end. So you have the 50% rule. Another rule of thumb is the 2% rule. This rule states that the real estate investment should rent for 2% of the purchase price. For example, if you pay $50,000 for a property, it should rent for $1,000 a month as this would be 2% of the purchase price. This rule is to ensure that you can get enough rent from this investment property to cover your expenses and produce cash flow. Now, I'm not going to lie to you guys. In this market, it's tough to find deals that are rent for 2%. So you may have to settle for less than 2%, such as 1.5%. But ideally, it's never a good idea to go below 1%. So make 1% be your minimum price floor in order to avoid getting negative cash flowing properties. I will say that this rule of thumb does not work in lots of markets, so just be aware. Another rule of thumb, the 70% rule. This rule states that your purchase price plus repairs should be 70% of the after repair value, the ARV. The after repair value is what your property would sell for using comps, what we talked about in this, what we talked about with single family homes and multifamily uh, units from and multifamily units two to four. So the after repair value is what your property would sell for using comps of other homes that were recently sold. So once you know the ARV comp, you can multiply it by 70% or 0.70, then subtract out your estimated cost of repairs to come up with the purchase price. So example, let's say... There's a property on the market for $120,000 and all the properties in the area that have the same amenities, that have the same number of bathrooms and bedrooms, they've all sold for recently about $100,000. 
So $100,000 is what you can safely assume is the ARV, is the the what the property would sell for using the comparables in the area, $100,000. So at this point, the 120 is irrelevant to you that the seller is selling the property for. So once you know the ARV and it's 100K, you multiply it using the 70% rule by 0.7. That gives you $70,000, okay? Then you subtract out the estimated cost of repairs. So if you say, if you think it's going to cost you $10,000 for you to get the property that you're buying from this owner to get to the value of the other properties that recently sold just like this property. So let's just say you're going to use the $10,000 to replace the roof and you're going to use it to buy new appliances because all the other properties that just sold have stainless steel appliances. And now you can sell your property at the value of the, of the other properties, but you need to use that $10,000 rehab. So you take the 70,000 and you subtract your estimated cost of repairs, which is 10,000. And that's how you come up with your purchase price. So 70,000 minus 10,000 is 60,000. So you offer, well, you may not offer 60,000 initially, but you know that 60,000 is the highest that you would go. That's your purchase price. And actually the purchase price usually ends up around 45 to 55% of the ARV, depending on how much repairs are needed. So again, this rule is to ensure that you have room to profit for a flip after a purchase and rehab costs. Also, closing costs and realtor commissions will eat into that 30% margin that you're leaving yourself. So your net profit might not even be that whole 30%. So just keep that in mind. Now, buying your next or first, first or next investment property should go a lot more smoother than it may have went before you listen to this episode. Why? Because now you know to start with real estate literacy, get your knowledge up. Then you're going to go goal setting, what type of lifestyle do you want to live, what type of financial goals do you need to live that lifestyle? Let's get the real estate to meet those financial goals. So then you go goal setting. Now that you know what type of real estate you need to buy, where do you want to buy that real estate? Where are you able to buy that real estate? So let's choose a market. Now that you've chosen a market, you know what type of real estate that you want. You know when you want to invest because you've clearly defined your goals you also have the education to move forward, it is time to start analyzing deals. This is the fun part. I've given you the rules of thumb for analyzing deals, but this is really where the learning starts because it's not until you, you start analyzing deals and, and from there making offers. But first, let me quickly tell you that the next step after analyzing deals is not even making offers. So after you start analyzing deals, step five is to build an A-team. And the reason you want to build your A-team after analyzing deals, you want to be able to approach your lender as a serious investor. Your lender wants to know that you've already decided exactly what markets you want to be in, what type of deals you want to get into, so on and so forth. Same thing with the real estate agent. I mean, a real estate agent will help you through a lot of these things, but that much more impactful when you come with all of your ducks in a row. So step five is building your A-team. Step six is financing. Step six comes after step step five is because once you've chosen your lender, it's now time to figure out what type of loans are available to you. And this is a really, really fun step. Once you figure that out, you got your pre-approval. Step seven is finding deals. And step seven is where most people stop. I told you guys earlier that step seven is where I started. I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, April of 2016. 
somebody handed me the book in April of 2016. Not handed me the book, but recommended it, recommended that I read it in April of 2016. And I started reading it that night. The very next month, <laughs> I bought my first, I had no experience, no idea that I was going to do this. I never even thought about being a real estate investor before April of 2016. Not a clue. I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and I bought my first property the next month. Now, this is not normal. Most people, even after reading that book, it still takes them a while. They still have ups and downs. They still do other things. They get distracted. And some people never get around to it. Some people eventually come back around and like, hey, like three years later, I remember I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and three years later, it finally hit me and I'm going to start. But it literally, that book hit me like a ton of bricks and I started investing the next month. I just jumped free in because I was like, if I don't, if I start asking questions, if I don't start, I may never start. So I started, I started at, at step seven. Most people stop at step seven because step eight is making offers. And I don't know why, but this step is so, for a lot of my students, this step is so, 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 it's what holds a lot of people back because the fear of making an offer, it, it's almost like one of the things where as you feel as though you've made an offer. So you are 100% committed to this deal. You have to buy this property. That is not the case. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go into debt with the psychology of it all. But, and with the way I teach, there's nothing permanent about an offer. You'll have many clauses. Okay. So many ways to back out of an offer. If you find out that, you know, things aren't what, how they appear to be, or, you know, your loan falls through there, there, there are many ways around getting out of an offer, but the point is you need to make lots of offers. Step nine is financial due diligence. So acquiring bank statements, all the financials, the rent rolls, and making sure that everything is exactly how it appears to be. Step 10 is physical due diligence, making sure everything on the actual property is how it appears to be, how they claim it to be. I just installed a new roof. Really? Let me see the receipt. Let me go actually check out the roof. Next step, step 11 is closing. Love this step. You love this step, or you will. It means all your hard work paid off. Congratulations. That's not the final step. That's not, there's, there's one more step after that. Last but not least is asset management. What do you do after you close? How do you get new tenants in if it's already occupied? How do you take over the asset? What do you do moving forward? What are the procedures? So if you're interested in a more detailed, outlined PDF of the rest of the steps, steps five through 12, make sure that you are on the mailing list because I'm giving it all away, guys, all of it. Steps one through 12, the 12 step process, everything that we discussed today and steps five through 12 will be in an upcoming newsletter email, probably titled part two of the 12 step process. I honestly don't know if I'll do another podcast episode for part two, maybe, maybe not. So I definitely suggest that you guys sign up, sign up to the newsletter so that you guys can have all of the steps and some of the resources that I give my coaching students to use when trying to succeed at, at a step. So with that being said, guys, I wish you all very, very much success in 2018 and in your, in your investing career. Let me know how everything goes. And if you like this episode, if, if it really, really helped you down your path, if you were able to clearly define steps one through four and, and, and start investing, if you're interested in, 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 in some one-on-one help, if you feel as though you need that help, you need that guidance, you need that training, 
I am opening back up my one-on-one coaching for a limited time. But after this, it'll be closed for a while because I have lots of projects in the pipeline right now. So I'm going to have it open. I'm going to have eight slots open again, and I'm going to start putting up testimonials. I have one testimonial that should already be up, but I'm going to start putting up testimonials from my coaching students. I do everything myself. Some of these things take a while, but I'm going to start putting up testimonials. So if you're interested in one-on-one coaching with me, getting into your first investment property, whether it's a single family, duplex, triplex, fourplex, whatever, get into your first investment property in 2018 and you're serious, you're ready to take it to the next level, you're ready to knock it out the park and you want some assistance, you want a coach, you want a mentor, you want to bounce some, you want somebody to bounce ideas off of, you want somebody to help you analyze your deals, you want somebody to provide you with the connections that you need to get into the property, I can help. Visit beforethemillions.com slash work with me and you'll find my one-on-one coaching. There are going to only be eight slots available I'm working on some other projects for you guys. So after this, uh, it's going to kind of be it for one-on-one coaching for a while, probably through the summer. I don't know, but I wouldn't want to risk it if you're if you're on the fence. So go ahead and visit beforethemillions.com slash work with me and make sure that you get a slot. Make sure that you get you get your 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 session in because it's going to be powerful. I guarantee you it's going to be powerful. And one of the reasons why I'm able to guarantee that is because I often and it's a fear that I deal with with within myself. I often fear the fear of underdelivering. I want to hear the words, "Man, right? That 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 was amazing. I, like I would have paid you $3,000 for that." Or you can't put a price on this because I've literally jump-started my whole investing career. My whole investing career has changed my life and my family's life and our future and our children's future for the better. That's what I'm trying to achieve. So I fear with the passion under delivering. That's how I can say with confidence that (laughs) when it comes to working with me, you will definitely, definitely, definitely get a lot of value thrown at you. I'm sorry to say. So anyways, that's all I have for you for today, guys. Again, if you're interested in working with me, one-on-one, one, visit beforethemillions.com slash work with me, and we'll, we'll have some fun. We'll get into we'll get into real estate investing. Until next time, I want you guys to constantly, every single day, be working towards the lifestyle that you guys have always dreamt of.